ask, is there anything new to say about Thomas Jefferson? <laughs> Especially about Thomas Jefferson and slavery. Well, the answer is a resounding yes. Master of the Mountain, our speaker's eloquent and provocative new book, based on information coming from archaeological work at Monticello and on previously overlooked or disregarded evidence, evidence in Jefferson's papers, opens up a huge, poorly understood dimension of Jefferson's world. Jefferson appears in those pages as a man of business and public affairs who makes a success of his debt-ridden plantation thanks to what he calls the silent profits gained from his slaves and thanks to a moral universe that he and thousands of others readily inhabited. Henry Winsick is a nationally prominent historian and writer. He is the author of several books, including The Harstons, An American Family in Black and White, which won the National Book Critics Circle Award in Biography in 1999, and An Imperfect God, George Washington, His Slaves, and the Creation of America, for which he earned the Los Angeles Times Book Prize in History and the Best Book Award from the Society for Historians of the Early American Republic. He holds a fellowship at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities in Charlottesville and has been awarded residential fellowships at the International Center for Jefferson Studies and the C.V. Starr Center for the Study of the American Experience at Washington College. Henry is no stranger to the VHS, I might add. In 2006, he participated in Virginians in the White House, a symposium that took place in this very room. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Henry Winsick, who will speak to us today about Master of the Mountain, Thomas Jefferson and his slaves. Thank you, Paul, for that very warm VHS welcome. And I just, I just came from a very delightful uh, light lunch with, with Paul and um, some visitors to the, uh, to the society. And they know how to make people feel very welcome here. Um, there is, to take up a theme that Paul uh, talked about, there is a lot um, to know, about, a lot new about Thomas Jefferson. We talked about this at lunch. Um, partly because there's just a lot of new documentation coming out of the archives. Uh, we, the Thomas Jefferson Papers Project has been going on for over 50 years, and I've, I don't know how many more volumes they have, 25, 30, that, uh, and people uh, at this moment are hunched over previously unpublished documents, either written by Jefferson or to him or relating to him, try, you know, transcribing them as accurately as possible, and then they'll be sent off to Princeton or Charlottesville to be put into print and put online. All of this, uh, this is just part of the immense new flow of, of, of new information, new data, new documents, things that we just didn't know before. So our view of the whole founding era, uh, and this is true of Jefferson, Washington, Hamilton, the other founders as well, our view of the founding era is inevitably going to change simply because we're getting, we're getting new information. Um, and there's a lot of new information coming out about slavery, in part because we're digging into some ancillary collections family papers, uh, court records, other kinds of legal records, land documents, um, and uh, photographs that we didn't know about before. Uh, and we're, we're finding a lot more information about the African Americans who were free and enslaved in that era than we ever thought we could, we could find. So inevitably, things change. Interpretations change. Um, they, they, they have to. History is, we're not finished with it. Um, I'm not going to read for the whole talk. I'm going to read a little bit. 
to start things off, um, because I'm going to touch on a number of themes in this talk, and one of them is idealism. Uh, and this, this passage I'm going to read was originally the beginning of the book, and I decided to push it almost towards the end, but it still remains one of my favorite parts of the book. It's the beginning of a chapter that's called The Effect on Them Was Electrical. American idealism, with its relentless pursuit of justice, induces a kind of giddiness. One such act of American justice and idealism unfolded in the following manner. On the first day of April in 1819, a group of 17 slaves left a plantation in the mountains south of Charlottesville, not far from Monticello, bound for a distant destination. They had been forbidden to carry much baggage and had been told that they could take items, only items that they would need while they were traveling. A black man, a fellow slave, was in charge of them. Now, it was not at all unusual in those days for slave drivers to be black men, and this caravan would not have excited much notice at a time when the roads of Virginia, Virginia were full of, quote, gangs of Negroes, some in irons, on their various melancholy ways to slave markets. This group of five adults and 12 children had not been told where they were going. Riding in wagons, the slaves headed west across the Blue Ridge, then turned north to follow the Great Wagon Road, now uh, I-81, up the Valley of Virginia. Along the way, a white man galloped up to check on the party's progress. He was their master, a wealthy, politically prominent Virginian. Several of the slaves had become ill, which delayed the party, so the owner rode on ahead. In Maryland, the wagons turned west along the National Road, reaching the Monongahela River after a trek of some 280 miles. Now, the master had arrived at the Monongahela ahead of his slaves, and there he purchased two flat-bottom boats, 60 feet long and 12 feet wide, on which the slaves embarked. Because his slaves were all mountain people who knew nothing of boats, the owner hired a, a, a river pilot but had to put him off at Pittsburgh because the man was constantly drunk. At Pittsburgh, the Monongahela joins the Ohio River, the great water route to the west, and a dividing line between slavery and freedom. On its left bank lay Virginia and then Kentucky, slave states, while on the right, stretched the shores of Ohio, which was free. As the master later remembered, the landscape seemed extraordinary, with pale green foliage of spring emerging on the banks. He chose this stunning panorama as the backdrop to reveal their destination to the people. He ordered the boats lashed together, assembled the people, and made them, as he said, a short address. Quote, I proclaimed in the shortest and fullest manner possible that they were no longer slaves, but free, free as I was, and were at liberty to proceed with me or to go ashore at their pleasure. The master later wrote, quote, the effect on them was electrical. The people stared at him and then at each other, as if doubting the reality of what they had heard. A silence settled upon them. Then, as they understood the truth of what they had heard, they began to laugh. He described it as a kind of hysterical, giggling laugh. And then they began to cry, and then fell again into silence. And he said, after a pause of intense emotion, bathed in tears, they gave vent to their gratitude and implored the blessing of God. The owner had a further announcement. He said that in recompense for their past services to him, upon their arrival at their destination, which was the free state of Illinois, he would give each head of family 160 acres of land with all the livestock and tools they needed to set themselves up, and he would settle near them. Now, the emancipator was Edward Coles, 
a 32-year-old member of a very prominent Virginia family. Dolly Madison was his cousin, and among the Virginians whom the Coles family counted as friends and patrons were Patrick Henry, James Monroe, James Madison, and Thomas Jefferson. Now, in the massive landscape of slavery, the emancipation of 17 people may not seem like a significant event, but its symbolism was and is enormous. Coles's emancipation was regarded, and still is, as a cornerstone of the foundation of Illinois. A painting of the event on the river hangs in the Capitol Rotunda in Springfield, titled Future Governor Edward Coles Freeing His Slaves While en Route to Illinois, 1819. In fact, Coles ran for governor of the state. Uh, it was only the second election that Illinois held, specifically to beat back attempts to make Illinois a slave state, and he narrowly won. The event is also significant because it was preceded by a debate between Coles and Thomas Jefferson about freeing the enslaved people. Jefferson told Coles not to do it. Uh, this is one of the mysteries that got me interested in writing about Jefferson. Um, we still hear to this day that, and it sa says as much on the Monticello website, that Jefferson was a lifelong foe of slavery. Well, if, if that were the case, then why is it that uh, he opposed, he told Coles not, not to free his slaves? Why didn't he jump in with both feet and, and join him? Um, I think that part of the problem with understanding Jefferson uh, is that uh, we pluck quotations and, and incidents uh, from his life and sort of jumble them all together to try to put, to put together a picture, but it's just incoherent. Uh, and we also tend to pick the things that put Jefferson in a good light, because a lot of the selecting of these things is done by Jefferson scholars. Um, it's also very easy to pull together a list of quotations that put Jefferson in a very bad light, uh, depending on your point of view. What I set out to do is more or less the same thing I did in my George Washington book, is to take this very confusing and seemingly paradoxical figure and put him on a timeline and see if any patterns emerge and if, if we can get at any kind of a deeper understanding. And I think, uh, and I think that that is true, that by, by looking at things chronologically that we, we see things that, that, that were invisible before. First of all, putting Jefferson on a timeline vindicates a statement not often remembered by the great slavery historian uh, David Bryan Davis that Jefferson went through a great change in the 1780s, uh, and that before that he'd been an emancipator, and after that, the, the most amazing thing about him is his silence about slavery. And that is absolutely true. In his young days, when Jefferson was newly, newly elected in the 17, uh, late 1760s to the House of Burgesses, he put forth, through a relative, uh, an emancipation plan to begin freeing Virginia slaves. Uh, it, it was defeated, but Jefferson didn't, didn't give up. Uh, he's just a few years later when he was uh, composing some thoughts for the uh, freeholders in Albemarle County to bring to Williamsburg to begin petitioning the king for their rights. He, put, he wrote this document, called, which is called in its shorthand, a summary view. It's a summary view of the rights that the colonists could demand from the English king. And tucked into that is a very interesting statement. He said, once we can bring an end to the international slave trade and stop the importation of slaves, we can proceed, quote, to the enfranchisement of the slaves we have. Now, enfranchisement is a legal term. It means to give citizenship to. It doesn't mean that these people will vote, that they will have the same social status as whites or the same financial status, but it means that they will be free and they will be regarded as citizens. This is an extraordinary statement to come from someone like Thomas Jefferson, but we don't expect it, but there it is. 
A few, couple of years later, he wrote the Declaration of Independence and said, all men are created equal. Now, very often, we think the way to read this is to silently insert the word white in front of men. Well, Jefferson couldn't have meant all men. He must have meant all white men. Well, no. He, when, when, it's interesting. When you want to get back to original intent, you can look at the reactions of the original listeners. When the authors of the constitutions of six southern states decided to base their the preambles of their constitutions on the Declaration of Independence, they made a change. They said all free men are created equal. They knew what Jefferson meant and didn't want it to have any effect within their own borders. Um, later, a few years later, when Jefferson was in the Continental Congress, he proposed another truly extraordinary piece of legislation which would have radically changed our history. Uh, he proposed language for the Ordinance of 1784, which essentially, you know, imagine a map of, 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 the, of the eastern part of the United States as it is now, and uh, Jefferson drew a bright red line along the edge of the, of the new United States and said, if after 17, after, you know, from 1784 until 1800, we will allow slavery in this territory. After 1800, there will be no slavery in these new territories of the United States. Now, that territory would have included the future states of Alabama and Mississippi. So imagine what our history would be like if slavery had been banned from, those, from that part of the country. Now, unfortunately, and Jefferson said it was very unfortunate, that language lost in the Continental Congress by one vote because a, the delegate from New Jersey was sick that day and didn't show up. And Jefferson later wrote that the, the fate of millions unborn, which was true, hinged on the voice of one man which heaven made silent on that day. In the 1780s, we begin to see changes coming over Jefferson. This is where things get a little bit confusing because he's sort of moving back and forth, back and forth. This is when he writes his notorious notes on the state of Virginia, when he suggests that black people are inherently inferior to whites and very different from whites, and makes his notorious and rather disgusting suggestion that in Africa, black women were copulating with, with apes. And yet, at the same time, we have to remember, his wife had brought into his marriage six mixed-race siblings uh, who were you know, very high-ranking servants in, in his household. He was surrounded by racial mixing. And yet, at the same time, he begins writing this tract, denouncing it, saying that there is something inherently wrong with it. So we begin to see the, uh, a dissonance breaking out in Jefferson. Um, he, the, one of the, uh, the real turning points in his life then as the revolution ends is he is sent to France. Now, when we think of Jefferson's um, time in France, we think, well, he went over there to learn about French cuisine, to savor French wine, to study French architecture, to have his servant James Hemings trained as a French chef, and to take up with young Sally Hemings, which is something that we can discuss later. Well, no. He had many, many more important things on his mind. First of all, he went over as our minister plenipotentiary, but he was our trade representative. This was a very, very important post at a very critical time. The, the new United States had emerged from the war with a lot of debt, mainly owed to British merchants. Um, and we were not then, in, by any, any means, a world superpower. We were what we would call today an emerging nation with a human rights problem. Uh, when Jefferson went over to France, uh, he encountered a number of, of very high French officials and intellectuals who had 
done their best to help us win the revolution. A couple of people, Marquis de Lafayette uh, and uh, Chastelou, had actually come over to the United States and worn the uniform. Mar Marquis, the Marquis de Lafayette served as a general. Chastelou served as a very high officer in Rochambeau's army. Uh, other French uh, officials had helped to win loans for us, which were critical. Had helped get support of the French military and naval forces. And now they wondered, how is it that you Americans had fought a war for universal human rights and you still have slavery? They couldn't understand it. And they pestered Jefferson for all the years that he was over there to do something about, civil, about, uh, about human rights, do something to end slavery. And now we begin to see Jefferson waffling, not quite telling the truth, telling partial truths. He said, well, back in Virginia, there is an, we are just about to pass an emancipation law, which was not true. What, he, what had happened and what he didn't tell the French was that the Virginia Assembly had already passed a very liberal manumission law. That is, it allowed individual uh, slave owners to free their own slaves at will without, government, without the government approval that had previously been required. Now, why didn't he mention this? Well, because the first question from the French would be, oh, so have you freed your slaves? Uh, but he didn't, he didn't mention this. And, but, and he kept making excellent excuses for why uh, America you know, couldn't free its slaves. One of them was, and this begins the pattern that we hear many slaveholders uh, indulging in, slavery is the fault of the slaves. We can't free the slaves because they're stupid. They're incompetent. They can't plan. They steal. Uh, if we, some people have tried to let them free, Jefferson said, and, it was a, and the experiment was, was a disaster. I actually go into the book how the opposite was, tr was true. He was responding to the fact that some Quakers on the eastern shore of Maryland and, Del and um, Virginia had, had freed slaves. It had been an enormous success, so successful that the Virginia Assembly actually ratified the manumissions and beat back attempts by dis some disgruntled slaveholding heirs to have those slaves seized. Um, but Jefferson, Jefferson repeated the, the, you know, the, these rumors. Uh, but at the same time, under such pressure from the French, he said, all right, when I get back to Virginia, I am going to settle some of my slaves alongside uh, imported German workers who are accustomed to working on a sharecropping system. The Germans will train my slaves to, you know, to be good farmers, to be independent, to plan, and I have no doubt that my slaves will become good citizens. This is probably the high watermark of Jefferson the Emancipator. Uh, when he got back from France uh, late in 1789 with his daughter Patsy and the two Heming slaves, one of the first things that happened was Patsy ran into her distant cousin, Colonel Thomas Mann Randolph from Tuckahoe, outside of Richmond. They renewed an acquaintance and quickly fell in love and declared they were going to get married. Well, a young wife needs a dowry, uh, and Jefferson didn't have a lot of cash, but what he did have was land and slaves. So he began, he set her up. With, uh, with a number of slaves, gave her some land outside Lynchburg the Poplar, from the Poplar Forest estate that he had inherited from his late father-in-law, John Wales. And he begins a pattern that we see that not, I mean, he begins a pattern in his own life that we can see from all the other slaveholders in Virginia at that time and into all the way up to the end of slavery. Slaves were a form of wealth. When you were passing wealth from one generation uh, to the next, in, in an economy that really didn't have a lot of cash, land and slaves were the, were the best way to accomplish that. 
Uh, the, and the other thing Jefferson was doing is even though uh, he, he was speaking about the necessity and his desire for emancipation and for ending slavery, he was planting it in, in the next generation. Uh, he had a couple of reasons for this. One is he wanted his daughter and his new son-in-law to have a genteel household as he did. So he gave them Hemings servants, uh, sort of duplicating his own household so that they would have Hemingses as their most intimate servants. But then he gave them kind of a big aggregation of slaves as a kind of a bank account. He gave them, as he described, 25 Negroes, little and big, uh, in a kind of a blunt description. And he left these slaves in his daughter's name only so that, uh, because he expected Colonel, Colonel Thomas Mann Randolph to run into financial difficulties, uh, and, he, and he very soon did. Uh, Colonel Tom was having troubles with his father, who gave him a very dubious wedding gift. He gave him a farm outside of Richmond called Verina, which was basically a mortgage with a farm attached to it. Um, <laughs> it, it Tom could never get, get out from under the mortgage. It was $2,500, which was an awful lot of money. And, and Jefferson said, don't touch it. Don't touch it. But Tom wanted to have land, and it was coming from his father, so he took it. And uh, he was always having uh, financial trouble throughout his life, partly because of this debt. And lo and behold, he did eventually have to begin selling slaves. But Jefferson knew that if you had enough slaves, that you had a financial bulwark against catastrophe. Uh, Jefferson also came back from France brimming with ideas. He had learned about French cuisine, but he had also learned about the latest developments in European agriculture and architecture. So he wanted to do two things. When he came back to Monticello, he wanted to largely abandon the planting of, of tobacco, which was wearing out the soil, and he wanted to shift to wheat. Uh, and the other thing he did is he wanted to completely revamp Monticello, make it bigger, grander, and French, put a dome on the top, make it make a three-story building look like one. Both of these projects required an enormous amount of money. They required a very highly trained and loyal uh, work, workforce, uh, well, most of which would consist of, of slaves. I mean, Jefferson did hire white workers to do some of the finest work, but he really did depend on, on his slaves, especially for, for raising wheat. Now, if there are any farmers among us, you know that raising wheat is totally different from raising tobacco. Uh, tobacco was a gang-raised product. I mean, the gangs of slaves would go out and do the same thing over and over and over again. Men, women, children, young and old, all out in the fields working under the supervision of an overseer, doing the same thing over and over again. Wheat required um, a tremendous variety of skills. Uh, it needed livestock. It needed wagons. Uh, it needed people uh, who were skilled at, at, not only at making wagons and repairing them. Uh, it was highly mechanized in that you had things like threshing machines, which had to be built, operated, and repaired by very highly skilled people. Uh, now, Jefferson turned to his enslaved workforce, these people who were supposedly stupid, incompetent, lazy, unable to plan. Lo and behold, in, a, in the span of a, of a few short years, this labor force had entirely been retrained, and to a large extent retrained itself, and picked up a whole range of, of new skills. And if you go on the Monticello website, it's fascinating to read lists. I won't read the whole list because it's too long. But these are, these are some of the occupations that the slaves carried out at Monticello. Plowmen, gardeners, shepherds, millers, charcoal burners, carpenters, cabinet makers, wheelwrights, carriage makers, Coopers, blacksmiths, nail makers, tinsmiths, seamstresses, tailors, stonecutters, stonemasons, shoemakers, plasterers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
All of these were slaves. A visiting Frenchman who had known Jefferson in France came to, to see Monticello in 1795. I always get the year mixed up as either 95 or 96. And he was amazed. He wrote, every article is made on his farm. His Negroes are cabinet makers, carpenters, masons, bricklayers, smiths. The children he employs in a nail factory, which yields already a considerable profit. And the young and old Negresses spin the clothing for the rest. Um, one of the fascinating things about the study of slavery is that we look at it, we still sort of look at it in a very sentimental way, and it's a very judgmental way. I mean, do you like Jefferson? Do you hate him? Do you loathe him? Uh, you can't judge him by our standards, or you can't judge him by any George Washington standards. There are all kinds of fights going on. This book is about Jefferson the businessman. I tried to look to see how Monticello was run. And if you looked at it, I sketched out a short course, which I don't think I'll get a chance to teach at Darden. But, um, it's, it's morals aside, Je and this is the 1790s, uh, talking about the timeline, when Jefferson came back from France, as I said, things really changed. Um, and the 1790s are fascinating, and I devote a lot of uh, effort, I mean, a lot of descriptive uh, stuff in the book to this. It's morals aside, Jefferson's elaborate program at Monticello in the 1790s would make an excellent case study in business schools. Now, Jefferson, the philosopher, has been endlessly parsed, but Jefferson, the on-the-ground manager, is most revealing, carrying us closer to the truth of slavery than anything he wrote in Notes on the State of Virginia or his other explications of slavery. At Monticello in the 1790s, Jefferson embarked on a comprehensive program to modernize slavery, diversify it, and industrialize it. Monticello would have a nail factory, a textile factory, a short-lived tinsmithing operation, coopering, and charcoal burning. He had ambitious plans for a flour mill and a canal. A close analysis of his program reveals patterns of strategic investment and innovation, the conveyance of assets to the next generation, physical and psychological methods of controlling and motivating a workforce, critical turning points where conflicts must be resolved between morality and, and economic goals. Owning the workers, he discovered, created unique possibilities for very long-term personnel planning. He could train talented adolescents for posts that they would hold for 20 or 30 years with incentive plans calculated to instill good character, diligence, and discipline. This, of course, applied only to the elite slaves. Like many other forward-thinking planters of his time and place, Jefferson set about the task of reimagining an old, widely maligned system to make it fit into a modernizing nation while preserving the values, outlook, and structure of an extremely conservative society. Through an analysis of his program, we can see how slavery not only survived, but flourished as a robust, flexible, and eminently adaptable system. This is true. Monticello is an example of how slavery was not dying out. It was changing. It was shifting. Tobacco planting was dying out. They shifted to wheat. And then there was, a, there was a, another dynamic going on, which I'll get to um, uh, in a minute. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take it up now. I talked about... Um, the, the way that he had used slaves as money, uh, and that, that as a form of money, that he would, that's how he would pass wealth to the next generation. Jefferson took this a step farther. Uh, and as I may have said before, Jeff, or maybe I didn't, Jefferson is a man of his time, but he illuminates his time. Through studying Monticello carefully, we can see the mechanisms that were beginning to be put in place by slaveholders all over Virginia. Jefferson realized the incredibly rich possibilities of turning people into cash, monetizing people. 
This is one of the things that I found in the records that most gets Monticello in a twist. They don't like to talk about this. Uh, Jefferson wrote in 1792 in a profit and loss memo to an Englishman who was, he had written to, this Englishman had written to George Washington saying, slavery can't be profitable. These people don't work hard enough. Uh, they're too expensive to maintain. I'm not going to put any money or recommend that anybody else put any money into a slave plantation. Jefferson wrote back, said, no, it's very profitable. He said, we don't have to pay them that, we don't, we don't have to pay much to house them or feed them. And then he suddenly began to calculate something else. He said, I, I have a 4% increase in my slave population every year. And he did that in a profit and loss memo. Two years later, he advised the neighbor's family after the, the, the father in the family had gone broke. He said, if you have any money left, put every farthing of it into buying land and Negroes because they appreciate it 5 to 10% a year. This is what he called his silent profit. Now, nobody had ever published this before. And this is very, this, when I, it was, I was startled when I saw this. I was absolutely startled. I said, why don't we know this? And I, when I, I mentioned it to one of the historians, and she just blew it off. Um, and they said, well, he talked like that sometimes. I said, well, no, this is the underpinning. This is what the whole machine worked on. Um, and the, what they also don't tell you is that when Jefferson was uh, re rebuilding Monticello, I said a very, very expensive proposition, he had sort of gotten his debt under control, and he decided, I can take on more debt to expand, to pay for my new industrial operations, to pay for this bigger, grander Monticello. How does he do it? He wrote to the bank that he'd done business with in Amsterdam and said, would you take slaves as collateral? And they wrote back and said, sure. So he wrote up the documents, collateralizing, uh, bundling and collateralizing, as we would say today. 150 human beings sent the document, the title, to Amsterdam. They opened a slave equity line, a line of credit for him at a merchant house in Philadelphia. And it was that money that Jefferson drew upon to build the Monticello that we see today. Uh, now, I th thought, well, he, surely he's in, I mean, there other people were, were financializing slaves, but he may be a bit of an outlier in this. And someone just sent me a reference to an article that came out in 2010 in a scholarly journal. There's an historian at SMU, Bonnie Martin, who has been very carefully studying the financial records of slaveholders, and she looked at 8,000 mortgage documents that were backed by slaves. This, this was the practice throughout the South, where people were being turned into money. Another friend of mine who did her graduate work at UVA found uh, early life insurance policies being taken on slaves. The slave, the slave owners in Virginia had so many highly skilled slaves, they had a surplus of them, so they were hiring them out to factories, uh, and they were hiring them out to work on their own, quote, you know, because the, the money would go back to the master. And so to guard against loss, against running away, or against the uh, injury, they were taking out life insurance policies. So here we see slavery entering the financial markets. And of course, like any other insurance company today, the Baltimore Life Insurance Company was laying off these policies on investors in Philadelphia, New York, Boston. Everybody was getting part of it. Don't forget, maybe some of you have seen Lincoln, and in the arguments over the 13th Amendment, one of the people arguing strongly against it is a congressman from New York. He had been the mayor of the New York City at the beginning of the war. New York City wanted to secede and join the South. Wall Street was making so much money from financing the, you know, the agricultural products and, you know, and, 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 and slavery. They didn't see any reason at all to, uh, to crush the, the Confederacy. Hey, we're part of it. Uh, Wall Street had, you know, Wall Street follows the money. 
uh, you can see this in, in going on at, at Monticello. Um, the other thing you can see is that the, is the, the myth of the benevolent slaveholder really collapses. Um, Jefferson was very kind to the people who worked at the top of the mountain, who were his most valuable cooks, his most valuable uh, laborers, I mean, no, not his artisans, his cabinet maker, John Hemings, his blacksmiths like the, the Granger family and, and Joe Fawcett and others of that ilk, some of whom got profit sharing or got um, other forms of, of payment. But farther down the mountain, things were very different. Slavery there and in other large plantations was very hierarchical. We talked about this at lunch. Uh, you've, I'm sure anybody who comes from a slaveholding family has heard the story, we loved our slaves. We, we traded, our sla traded our slaves very well. I'm sure that was true of the slaves who were closest to the master and mistress. In the case of Monticello, those slaves were his relatives in one way or another. And one of the things that, I mean, I don't mean to criticize Monticello. They have done incredible revolutionary work on African-American history. There are a few things that I wish they would change. One of which is they always refer to how you know, Jefferson treated the slaves and paid them and gave them housing and jobs and this. They should change that to say Jefferson gave his black relatives this, this, and this. <laughs> because from contemporary accounts, Jefferson, we know now that Jefferson hired a, a succession of very cruel mass, uh, uh, overseers. One of them was called a terror, not by some leftist historian from Berkeley, but by Jefferson's, <laughs> Jefferson's neighbors in Elmerle County who refused to hire slaves to work under that man because of what they said, the terror of his name. He was so cruel. Um, there was another slave, another um, overseer named Gabriel Lilly, who was whipping the children to get them to work in the nail factory. Um, the nail factory was very close to Jefferson's heart. Uh, he started, as I mentioned before, in the mid-1790s. He supervised it personally. It began to make an enormous amount of cash right away. The, the boys who were working in it were from 10 to 16 years old, and they worked from 10 to 16 hours, a, or 14 hours a day. Uh, and they were so profitable that, that just, I think it was four months of their work, three months of their work, paid the grocery bill for the mansion for the entire year. Jefferson was importing all kinds of fancy goods from a merchant in Richmond, you know, his cheeses, his wines, his olives, uh, you know, you name it, all the things he'd gotten a taste for in, in, in France. Uh, and this was a very, it was a $2,000 a year bill. And these pre-teenage and pre-teenage boys were paying the entirety of that bill in just, with one, just one quarter's worth of work. Uh, and so when some of them, the youngest ones, refused to show up for work or were slow in showing up, his overseer was whipping them. Jefferson got a report about this, and he refused to stop it. The, um, the strange thing is that the, 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 we talk about new information emerging from the records. The original letter, which reports that, from, from Colonel Randolph, which reports to President Jefferson that the small ones are being whipped, was published in the 1950s uh, by Monticello. It omitted the line about the boys being whipped and, and gives the, the, the reverse impression that everything was going fine and that it was a system of perfect benevolence. In 2005, the, the papers of Thomas Jefferson published the whole letter. And when I was reading the new edition, flipping through the documents, looking for new items on slavery, I came to that letter and I said, oh, I've seen this. I don't need to look at it. But then I looked at the end and I said, Jesus, a sentence there that wasn't there before. And I pulled the two of them out and it was like a mirage that suddenly the meaning of the letter is reversed. The colonel was reporting the children are being whipped. And nobody, had, the, the, the head historian at Monticello didn't know this until I told her. 
um, she was shocked to find out. I don't think she can, she's gotten over it yet because <laughs> it, it undercuts, over the last few years, we've seen the development of a, of a, of a theory that Jefferson devised a, quote, kinder, gentler slavery. I don't think it holds up. Uh, and I'm the, I think that some of the, 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 the Jeffersonians will g try to give me an argument on this, but it's all in the documents. It was a very, very, very rough system. It's an illusion that it was benevolent. Um, I think, do we want to cut it cl close enough for, for questions? But, um, uh, but anyway, there is a lot uh, th there is a lot of new material uh, that, 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 that's coming out. And at the, at the time of the, oh, actually one thing, a couple of things I wanted to mention is that there is a bookend to that um, legal proposal that Jefferson had in 1784, where he said, he draws the bright red line at the end of the map, this is metaphorical, he didn't really do it, and says, beyond this point, no more slavery. You know, in 16 years, if you're in there with slaves, in, in 16 years, you've got to give it up. Fast forward 20 years, 1803, Louisiana Purchase. Circumstances are different. You would think that Jefferson would, would be the same man he was in 1784 and say, this is fresh new territory. We are not going to put slavery into it. Uh-uh, the opposite takes place. He sends a secret message to his floor manager in the Senate, slaves to be admitted to the territory. Now, the Congress had already passed very strict restrictions on slavery. Uh, they didn't want to see slavery in, in, in the new territory. The slaveholders howled, the ones who were there. They said, our real estate will depreciate uh, 50%. Some of the slaveholders who were already there said, watch this, we'll call Napoleon back. Uh, they blustered and threatened and put so much pressure that uh, you know, Congress finally, finally buckled. And Jefferson really never had any intention to stop slavery from going in there. I mean, he, and when, when, when he had the chance, to draw that line on the map again, he didn't do it. Uh, and the interesting thing is that in 1784, he didn't try to stop slavery immediately. He gave it some time to wither away. He said, okay, you can have slaves in 1784, but if you go in with slaves, you'll have 16 years to figure a way out of it. He could have done the same thing with Louisiana. He could have said, all right, you can, because somebody said we need slaves to, quote, fertilize the territory. Jefferson said, okay, bring in the slaves but you have to get rid of them in 15, 20, 25 years. You could have picked the date. He didn't do that. Thomas Paine, of all people, the great, these are the times that try men's souls, wrote to Jefferson while this decision was being made and begged him not to send people into Louisiana in a state of what he called wretchedness and slavery. Uh, but Jefferson ignored him. Thomas Paine remembered the old Jefferson. The one, he reminded Jefferson of that emancipation plan that he talked about in France. He, Payne said, this is the chance. Send slaves on short indentures to Louisiana, give them some land, or, or rent them some land, train them, and then set them free. This is America's great chance. Jefferson wanted, wanted no part of it. Uh, back in the 70s, an historian called uh, Tom, uh, Robert McCauley said, we really need to call Jefferson the father of slavery in Louisiana, but we really don't, just don't, uh, don't want to face it. Um, around the time when Edward Coles was taking his people to Illinois to free them, Jefferson actually had the money to do it. Uh, we hear a lot about Jefferson's debt and how he was, you know, it was impossible for him to free his slaves because of his debt. I've looked very carefully at the financial records and I've talked with a, someone who studied them in even greater depth than I, and we came to the agreement, he's the one who used this phrase, he said to me, Henry, Jefferson was a financial genius because we were both seeing a pattern where, first of all, debt never stopped him from doing anything he didn't want, that he wanted to do. <laughs> Consider, 
he built Monticello, finished it in the 1780s, and then built it again. Built Monticello twice. He then built Poplar Forest, his mansion outside of Lynchburg, when he grew tired, when he wanted some more privacy. Then he put $30,000 into his mill and canal project at the foot of Monticello. And the joke in Albemarle County then was, Mr. Jefferson has built his mill in the only place where there ain't no water. So <laughs> he had to rebuild an old canal to bring water to, to, uh, to the mill. The mill was a catastrophe, not because of the slaves, but because he put it in the hands of a, of a white family who did, didn't know what they were doing. There are actually, there are a number of references in Jefferson's, in Jefferson's papers to the incompetence of, of white people, which I bring, he said, first of all, he couldn't, he said, never hire a white tenant farmer. They'll ruin the land. Um, but blacks, you know, they, they were actually very good farmers. They brought him, you know, a, tr a tremendous amount of profit. Um, I'm, I'm going to cut it off there with one, just one last thing, a statistic, uh, and then maybe a quote, uh, to pick up on the financial theme. In 1860, on the verge of the Civil War, uh, economists have, have calculated that the second most valuable capital asset in the U.S. was slaves. That the slaves, enslaved black people in the aggregate were worth more than all the banks, all the railroads, all the factories combined. The only asset that was more valuable than slaves was the land of the United States. So that formula that Jefferson had hit upon back in the 1790s, they increase at 4% a year. Their value increases at 5 to 10% a year. This became the economic engine. And you can see this uh, in, in, in Washington, too. This is why he hated slavery, because it had turned people into cattle in the market. It had turned people into money. If agriculture was failing in one place, certainly it was booming somewhere else. You would just move those people. They were portable, bequeathable, disposable assets. You would move those people to Mississippi or Louisiana, where they would be worth more, or Kentucky. Uh, and it was, it was the shadow financial system. Um, the other thing uh, I want to go back to is a, is a quote from Reinhold Niebuhr, the theologian. Uh, I read his book, Irony of American History, was one of the things I always had at my, at my elbow when I was doing this book. He has some very, very interesting, very penetrating comments um, ab about American history. He was a great patriot, a great anti-communist. He had some bricks thrown at him, too, but he, um, anyway, and he was also my editor's father, so I had reasons <laughs> to read him. Um, but he said something very interesting. He, you know, he said that we are, according to our own tradition, the most innocent people on earth. You know, we don't ever do anything wrong. And this makes it hard for us to look back on our history and actually learn from it. Because we look back and say, oh, we love Jefferson. He was so important. We love Washington. We love all these people. They are so important to us. They can't have done anything wrong. Well, we do have to make judgments. We, and otherwise, we, we never learn. Um, and that's what the thought I would like to leave you with, and I guess now we can start uh, any questions. Uh, there will be two people with microphones in the aisles, so if you have a question, you can make your way to them, or they will make their way to you. They'll make their way to you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you. Could you please comment on, uh, Jefferson evidently died in poverty, and you've commented that he was a brilliant financial businessman. Could you please comment on why he died penniless? Uh, well, as my friend Billy Wason said, he's the, he's the, the other Jefferson scholar who's the, also a real financial expert said, at a, at a talk, he said, Jefferson didn't die insolvent, he died illiquid. 
Uh, he died during a dip in real estate values, so his land wasn't really uh, worth that much. The other thing that, the thing that really sank Jefferson was he signed, he co-signed a note, it was, it's real estate that killed Jefferson. Uh, someone should write that we need a new history of real estate in, in the U.S. Um, Jefferson had co-signed a note for an in-law, uh, Senator um, uh, Wilson Carey Nicholas, who came to him and said, Mr. Jefferson, I'm invested very heavily in Kentucky lands. I'm going to lose my option unless I can come up with $20,000. Would you just co-sign this note? I'm really good for it. Don't worry. Jefferson co-signed the note. Six months later, uh, Nicholas went bankrupt. That was in 1820. Until that point, Jefferson was really able to, uh, he was always refinancing, he was finding new sources of, uh, of credit. I mean, reading his financial letters is interesting. I mean, lots of people were willing to lend him money. Um, and that was, that was very common in Virginia at the time. But it was only in 1820 when he co-signed this $20,000 note that, um, that, that that's what sank him. Because the guys who held that note were very impatient. And the letters from Monticello get very gloomy. And they didn't have the cash uh, to, uh, to pay that off. So, but until 1820, he was doing very well. So, uh, okay. Uh, Mr. Winchek, thank you for a very fine lecture. Uh, because Thomas Jefferson's words probably have been echoed around the world and held as an uh, outstanding example of American democracy, I must say that your lecture filled me with sadness, and with rage. I have a question. Was Thomas Jefferson immoral, corrupt, or just like our politicians today, willing to impose hardships on people without setting the example themselves? I, it's a very disturbing question that one must ask. Thank you. Uh, it, it, thank you for the question. It's, um, that is a very disturbing question. Um, I think, and I'm going I'm, I'm to answer it partly by quoting George Washington, my, my hero. Um, I think that Jefferson was corrupted by power, uh, that he was, uh, he was definitely a, a racist, um, but I question the depth of his racism. I, I wonder if, it, in part, it was a cover for things that he wanted to do anyway, but I think that Je Jefferson discovered in, this, in the 1780s and especially in the 1790s how profitable slavery was and he really didn't want to give up on it and the power he held over these people was absolute. There was no pushback. And he told himself, you know, I can make this work. I can make this a little bit better for these people, just good enough. I have a, I have a section about this in the, in the book just good enough so that they, they, they won't rebel. Uh, and then we can just carry it on and on and on forever. Uh, and I, I think that the fact that he could make all the decisions, that, that really corrupted him. Um, and I, maybe I'm not doing a good, a, good, a good job of explaining it, but I think that uh, it, it, it shows, the, again, that the truth of you know, power tends to corrupt and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Um, and we can see that you know, Jefferson, the early... The younger man was an emancipationist, and then he turned away from it, and it was money and it was power that got to him. At the end of the war, at the end of the revolution, uh, when you hear say the war, you mean 60, 61 to 60. When I say the war, I mean the revolution. At the end of the war, there was a very powerful movement to emancipate 
slaves. One of two of Washington's aides, one of whom was Alexander Hamilton, went down to Georgia and Carolina to get the slaveholders to sign off on a big emancipation plan to arm slaves. Of course it failed. And when, when Washington got the report back that it had failed from, uh, his, from his aide, uh, John Lawrence, he wrote this very melancholy, melancholy letter about the American spirit. He said that, and I'm paraphrasing now, that spirit of sacrifice, which at the beginning of this contest would have sacrificed anything to its achievement, to its attainment, has long since subsided. And every selfish passion has taken its place. It is not the public interest, but the private interest that motivates the generality of mankind, and Americans can no longer boast to be an exception. It's a very powerful letter. It cuts right to the heart of this notion that we are an exceptional people. We are what Reinhold Niebuhr says, innocent and pure. Washington said no, and he said it specifically in the subject of slavery. And he said in this very short span we've been corrupted and the private interest has taken over. And I think that uh, that happened with, with Jefferson. Uh, if you get a chance to read the book, and I hope you will, you see there, there were a lot of emancipators around. So Paul, okay. Recently I taught a class on Aaron Burr for Christopher Wren. And needless to say, Jefferson was part of the course. Um, one of the characteristics that I started seeing as a pattern in Jefferson's behavior was, um, as Adams called him, a shadow man. He tended to recede into the shadows and was very manipulative to get others to do his dirty work. Did you find that in your studies? That is, that is, yes, that is a very accurate characterization of Jefferson. And you can see that in his dealings with, um, with his slaves. Whenever he had something that was very personally, almost all the time, when he had something very personally distasteful to him, he handled it through an intermediary. Uh, one of the, I mean, well, when he sent his daughter, Beverly, I mean, Harriet Hemings, off, never to be seen again, to the North, he, he gave, he had his overseer, give her $50 for her stage fare. Now, why didn't he do that himself? Uh, I mean, it seems to me he just didn't want to have the, he didn't want to face her. Uh, on another occasion, when he, uh, one of his slaves, uh, Mary Hemings, had formed a relationship with a rich white merchant in Charlottesville when, when Jefferson was in France. She had four children, two of whom were fathered by this merchant. When Jefferson came back from France, one of the first things he did was go and see Mary and her husband and then he left, and a few weeks later, he wrote to his manager saying, I want you to go and see Mary and tell her that she can keep her, whatever children she chooses for herself, but I want to take two of them back. So, I mean, this is like, kind of like a Sophie's Choice. If you're a mother and you've got four kids and somebody says, okay, pick two that you can keep. Jefferson did this through his farm manager. He had his farm manager go and see Mary Hemings, and this is one of his you know, relatives. Um, so, and there are other instances, too, where he worked through an, an intermediary. Um, in the back? Uh, yeah. Um, it was a very interesting talk, but uh, in your portrayal of Jefferson as a businessman, there seems to be, I, I haven't read your book, but you didn't address uh, the psychology of Jefferson and his motivation for having this. When I read about Jefferson, what usually strikes me is very much as he was a very, uh, a man very much wrecked by grief. Um, his wife died young. Uh, he only had two surviving children. And much like his um, future son-in-law, he had a really bad business arrangement with his father-in-law, giving him something that had like a lot of debt. 
Um, and I can't help but think that maybe a lot of Jefferson's um, racialism or attitudes towards slavery, slavery were a sort of solution to a cognitive bias or a cognitive, uh, cognitive dissonance that he might have had, this sort of double think that um, he resolved with a very nuanced, very incorrect, and this is a no, no chance of an apology for that. Um, but I, I was wondering if you could comment on that, about whether you know, the same guy can talk about slavery being the, uh, um, the weather bell in the night, or whatever the expression the fire is. Fire bell. Fire bell in the right. night. Uh, even later on in his life, um, you know, which a lot of people have said predicts the Civil War or whatever, and then also he um, refused to um, accept the, um, like someone gave him ben, uh, Benjamin Banneker as a uh, counterexample. Oh, right, right. And he and refused. He, yeah, he said, and he well, said, a white oh, guy actually did Banneker's work. Right, and yeah, he refused right. to accept it. So it seems right. to me that here's a view of a guy right. who right. has right. a very you, complicated you, psychology. Right. You, yes, exactly. You raised two really good points, which I want to address. One is the psychology of his, of his debt. And I mentioned that um, one is that he, he really did manage to handle it. He complained about it a lot. But the, and I go into this in some detail in the book. It's amazing to see in the letters how he gradually blames his slaves for the debt. Um, uh, the, the debt that he inherited from his father-in-law. Essentially, his father-in-law uh, decided to jump into the NASDAQ at the wrong time. He the slave trade was booming in the early 1770s, and he said, I'm going to make some money on this. He made a deal uh, to finance a shipload of, 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 of African slaves. Uh, and then he, he, he delivered the slaves, and, but it was a, now, now the market had fallen, and the planters wouldn't pay him. So he was on the hook. He died, and then Jefferson was on the hook for that debt. Uh, Jefferson didn't blame his father-in-law. He didn't blame the rich planters who refused to pay. He didn't blame the smart traders in London. He blamed the slaves, now, the, you know, the poor people who had been sold. The other question of the racism is something that's very interesting, and I didn't really take it up in the book. I've got a theory that I, can't, I didn't develop very carefully that... Part of Jefferson's resentment against mixed-race people is that after his wife died in 1782, he was left with these black relatives who had a claim on him. I mean, they were his blood kin. They were, some of them were blood kin, some of them were kin by marriage. And they always had a hold over him. And you can see that in a couple of his relations with the men in the family, uh, he could get very angry when these people wanted something. Um, so I think that, his, that as long as his wife was alive, uh, she was the emotional and psychological bridge between him and the black and, and his and the slaves. When she died, that bridge was gone, but he was stuck with this kinship that he couldn't break out of. Uh, that's just, I mean, I couldn't develop it far enough. I hate going too deeply into psychology because it gets very woolly very fast. Um, at, least, at least in my head. But. In light of all the uh, evidence that you found on Jefferson's uh, collateralization of the slaves. Is it time for a reevaluation of George Fitzhugh's slaves all? Uh, we are, there is a lot of research going on into uh, the business of slavery. Um, and I think that if you looked into carefully into Fitzhugh's records, the records of any, of any slaveholder, uh, you, you would see a very, very powerful financial component and a cold-bloodedness that would shock you. Um, when I did the Harston research, um, I came across a letter from one of the younger members of the family who'd been sent down to Mississippi to liquidate an estate. Most of that was, uh, was, some of it was land, a lot of it was people. And he wrote back to his aunt, who was the chief stockholder in the estate, and apologized for the low price. He said, I'm sorry, the auction didn't go all that well. There were a great many old ones and diseased ones and a good many children. 
he didn't care. He was just sorry that he hadn't gotten as much money as his aunt had expected. So, yeah. Okay. Um, I've listened to all this. I've read your book. I know that Edmund Bacon, who was the overseer for 16 years there, after the time period you're talking about, he supposedly changed all these views. He has quite a bit. He left uh, information. He said how kind Jefferson was to his slaves. A number of his relatives have left things in their letters and journals about how kind Jefferson was to his slaves. And I know publicly a number of historians and Jefferson scholars have taken you on on this and they do not mm -hmm. agree with your painting of Jefferson as a slave-whipping, calculating tyrant. So I really, I question this myself and do you really, is that really, it's in your book, it's all through your book. It's very clear to me that this was one of the main statements you wanted to make. So is this really want you, what you want us to believe about Jefferson? No, not that he was a slave-wielding tyrant because he didn't like cruelty. The, uh, the one- that he whipped his slaves? I'm sorry? That he- No, he didn't personally do it. And he stopped the slaves, he stopped several of his overseers from- No, actually he slaves. didn't, that's the myth. No, 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 that's sir. the myth. You have that in your in your book about that he Hubbard, stopped about Hubbard. He refused. Oh yes, yes, yes. No, that's right. No, no. To, I thought you were talking Hubbard. about the Neil boys. No, there was um, uh, there was the, well. This is the interesting thing about Bacon because Bacon said that you know people, Mr. Jefferson couldn't stand to have anybody whipped, and then, you know, implying that it never happened. And then when Hubbard was caught stealing the nails. You know, Bacon brings him to Jefferson, and Jefferson says, "Oh, we can't, you know, we can't punish him." And Jefferson lets him off. I mean, there is that, that is there is that instance of Jefferson exonerating or, you know, having not allowing someone to be whipped. But then Hubbard goes back to the nail factory, and there's there's the the enforcer, there's Grady standing there with with the whip. So what that story tells me is that whipping was common, because great they have an well they, no I'm serious because they have a man whose only job is to whip people in the nailery. That's grating. And Jefferson says, no, 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 don't, you know, don't whip him. And, and Bacon referred to the chastising that was customary. What do you think he meant? I mean, uh, you know, it was a much, then why do you think, well, one of Jefferson's own relatives writing about Poplar Forest said, I fear the poor Negroes fare hard. I wish they were treated as well as Mr. Turnalon's are. Mr. Turnalon's place was in Louisiana, a sugar cane plantation, which was notoriously rough. Uh, I'm not saying that, that people, that, well, we also, we, we make the mistake of looking at the way the people at the mountaintop were treated. That they, they were treated well. They got special food, they got better food than anybody else, they got better housing, they got better clothes, better jobs. Farther down the mountain, things were different. Why do you think the neighbors called uh, Page a terror? Uh, you, you know, and, and even Jefferson referred to people as excessively severe. You said, you know, you've, you've read the book. I have, I have a section about this. I don't think Jefferson liked violence. I, I think he hated it. But he accepted it as part of what was required to keep the plantation going. Uh, his son, Colonel Randolph, was, you know, writing to him from Monticello when Jefferson was up at Philadelphia or Washington saying, well, you know, this overseer is out of control. This one is a little rough. This one is a little too soft. What do you want me to do? Jefferson's response invariably was keep up the productivity. You know, do whatever it takes. Um, so, and then, you know, we know that Lily was beating the crap out of people. Lil, Lily, Lily beat James Hemings nearly to death. And then, Jeff, and then Jefferson said, this man is the best over, answers my purposes better than anybody I ever had. Um, so, I mean, cruelty was definitely, I mean, if, uh, 
I, they, you know, they don't like it. You know, Cinder hates this idea because she's the one who's developed the idea that Jefferson was, quote, perfecting slavery. And she writes, bases much of her thesis on that letter in which Jefferson wrote to Colonel Randolph, you know, again, through an intermediary, I forgot to speak to you to tell Lily about the nailers. I don't want them whipped. So Cinder has built a whole theory about this that Jefferson you know, was forbidding the whipping of, of his slaves. No, Jefferson was saying, go easy on this one small subset of boys who are raising a huge amount of money for me. I don't want the crap beat out of them. As for everybody else, he didn't care. OK, well, you know, let's, let's, let's talk about afterwards. There is documentation that I haven't seen, but I've been told about, that does challenge some of the assertions made in your book, which I haven't read yet. Okay. But I w among those who have criticized your book are Annette Gordon-Reed, mm -hmm. who wrote um, two great stories about Hemings and Jefferson. And you mentioned Cinder Stanton. I guess people here know who she is, who she is. I think she, she was the former head historian at Monticello. And I, I do believe that she at one time um, thought she has reassessed her appraisal of the book. Is that correct? Uh, I don't, you know, no, no. Cinder wrote a letter to the hook in Charlottesville saying that I was a deceiver, that I used truncated quotations, distorted history, did not show sufficient respect for previous historians, and I wrote a response to that. Um, well, well, would you so. like to share? <laughs> And also, the 4% you mentioned, I was told that Monticello and the slaves were not included in this um, document that you have that claims that Jefferson um, felt that his slaves, uh, the value of um, slave children, um, increased by 4% every year. And Jefferson really was a poor money manager from everything um, that I've read about him. It wasn't just in um, uh, 1820 when um, uh, Nicholson asked for his help, and he was married to Jefferson's um, grandsons. His grandson married unto that family. Right. But, um, but in fact, he'd had problems throughout um, uh, uh, because he had a great lust for living well. Um, so I, I just wonder what your defense is uh, from these scholars who've been studying. Well, my Jefferson defense is, is the life. documents. It's it's who it, claim the, that these do, who say that these documents don't in fact support what you're claiming. All you have to do is read them. In a, it's in the middle of a pro, and the four percent thing is first of all whether, that he wasn't making a four percent that that they weren't appreciating it for. I said they appreciated five to ten percent even more. In the middle of a profit and loss memo, he says, I allow nothing for losses by death, but I will presently take credit 4% for annum, per annum for their increase over and above keeping up their own numbers. So he was saying that the slave community increased at the rate of 4% a year. This is in the middle of a profit and loss memo he was sending to a potential English investor. Annette Gordon-Reed says, it doesn't mean what it says. You know, Annette's at Harvard, but it doesn't give her the right to, to say that this doesn't mean what it says. She's and pretty good at what she does, too. She's a pretty good yeah, scholar. Well, I have a lot of disagreements with her. And let me just say this. I'm vehemently opposed to slavery. I think slavery was I'm really bad. I'm sorry. I did. Okay. I, yeah. <laughs> I just want I to make that really clear. I'm not defending Jefferson, so right. holding slaves. Well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Paul. Thank you all for coming.